This is The Film File, the film show for film geeks, by film geeks. Two men, one mission. One vision. Hello and welcome back to a proper episode of The Film File. I'm Lee Ford. And I'm Andy Beacon. Shall, shall we spill the beans as to why we did a, a, a kind of an insert episode last week, a bottle <laughs> episode as I... I called it. I mean, to be fair as well, I mean, to be fair, a lot of the audience probably wouldn't have picked up on it because I think we did a good job. I can't believe of, uh, we did it. <laughs> so, to be honest. Of making it almost a normal show. I mean, we only record, we normally record for about almost two hours sometimes. But last week we literally recorded for just on 34 minutes. So um, digging back into the archives to find a deep dive to pad it all out. Timed it to almost the hour. There was only the neat things that was really missing from the show and and this waffle that we have at the beginning that you guys all love, apparently, because those of you who have met have said that you love getting to know us a bit more, so <coughs> you're stuck with us now. Uh, but yes, uh, so you might have just heard that cough in the background. Um, <laughs> that will let, that will lead nicely into why we did a condensed episode last week. So we started recording and I said to Andy, look, buddy, I'm not feeling it this week. I'm, I'm not feeling very well at all. I was a bit feverish. Uh, I thought I got um, I thought I got a dental infection because I'd been to the dentist. Turns out I got COVID and I got COVID bad. This is the third time I've had it. So the first time is the one that everybody had. You know, you couldn't smell or taste, and you 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 felt rubbish and run down. Second time, unless I'd taken the test, I would never have known that I got it. I didn't even feel ill. I had to take it because my my partner was uh, a. a had picked up on it this time boy it hit me for six started out as um as a, a really bad headache and then I, I it felt like some sort of virus i thought I, as i said i thought i got some sort of infection turns out took a test got covid and i have been bedridden for the majority of the week not being able to do anything and the weirdest thing is just just falling asleep all my energy was would be taken up and then suddenly the next thing i know i'd been asleep for half an hour, an hour, two hours. It's been an odd week. I'm on the tail end of it. I'm not 100%, as you can probably tell by the gravelly, uh, <clears throat> as you probably can tell by the gravelly voice, but well enough to do the show. But uh, to be honest, it came as, a, as an absolute surprise. It just crept up on me, hit me like a runaway train. Knocked you for a six. I know Absolutely. When, when we spoke on the phone the other day and you, you were just saying that you, you just wiped absolutely yeah. white not even got the energy to do anything from the couch as well and i've been i've been in that situation where oh, it's, it's just like awful. you're so exhausted you can't even watch something on netflix etc because you're too exhausted to pay attention to anything it's it was only towards the end of the week that i i had the tv on there was nothing else really i could do i couldn't read couldn't couldn't watch as soon as i i, I focused on anything I'd, I'd i'd bail out i'd fall asleep but i did manage to i did manage to do that thing where i I've watched or started watching things with my other half and she's got bored. And so we put it aside and I've gone back to them and finished, finished lots and lots of movies. Mank, for instance, uh, never finished Mank, watched it with my other half. She wasn't into it. Always said I would go back to it, got through that, got through, uh, I lost my body. I finally finished that. I think that had been sat there forever and just did lots and lots of bits and pieces of, of catching up with things. But yeah, very strange week. And, and it's it has. It's just been literally from today, been a week. The, the worst part about it, it was the kiddo's birthday. And we'd had a family meal booked and 
a, a birthday night out and couldn't do either. So that was hugely, hugely disappointing. Uh, but had no appetite, so eating's not been a thing. And now I, I'm eating like a horse. I, um, <laughs> I really am, which uh, kind of ties in quite nicely with that background image you've got, Andy. Uh, but yeah, I, I've, I, I think from I think the last time I had a proper meal had been Friday, and I think it was Thursday before I started eating again. I'm, I've I've tried every flavour of soup. I can tell you. Well, I, while Lee's been taking downtime to get better, and I'm glad to see that you, you know, you're definitely on the mend. Still got a Thank couple you. of coughs and a the gravelly voice, but I'll, if you had been here last week, good listeners, and seeing what I saw over this camera oh, footage, it's a ghost. <laughs> wow, Lee was not in a good place. To drop the show as we'd started recording, I don't think we've ever done that. I think we've always yeah. said there's always been a plan, and God, look, uh, next week we'll do this or. Or, or do this for, for whatever reason, technical reasons. But we've never started a show and I went, I'm not going to be able to finish it. I mean, I'm pretty sure from Lee's point of view last week when he dropped that bombshell on me at the start of the recording, he could see it. You know, like it, in like a beautiful mind and things like that, when you see all the equations bit around the head and all <laughs> that, because that's what my fight face went like as I was trying to work out, okay, that deep dive from the past was about 20 minutes long. And then we got this. Okay, we just need to do some news. <laughs> I'd, I'd done mathematical calculations in my head to just work out how much we'd need to record for me to make this a comfortable job. <laughs> yeah, thankfully, we, we'd had enough news that week in the usual box office and sort of filled it in. But hey, I'd, back to normal this week, uh, at least for the show. And I had an easy backlog of reviews to dip into because, yes. as you know, I... You've seen everything. Plowing through things. I mean, I've been playing catch up as well. I missed all of us strangers when it was initially released a few weeks ago. So I caught up on that this week. And we're not going to review that on the show today, but I'm hoping to put it onto the YouTube channel when I upload some of the reviews of this week or last week. All I've got to say with all of us strangers, if you've not seen it and you want to see it, don't listen to people talking about it who don't know what they're doing. Because we always avoid spoilers here. We yeah. will talk about things without it being a risk for you having it spoiled. But if you work in a cinema, you don't get that joy. And I had this film spoiled for me on its opening weekend by someone literally coming out of the screen saying, oh, that's really good. I can't believe that this happened. And me and the member of staff who was with me just looked at them with a look of disdain. And it's just like, how dare you? How dare you spoil a film for us? And, you know, the film still impressed me. But I'd had it spoiled for me. So... I didn't have the impact that I'm seeing a lot of people having from it. So if you want to see it, rush out and see it now. I do recommend it. That's a little mini review bonus. Um, but my full review will come on the YouTube channel. Hey, I want to see it. I really, really want to see it. But yeah, cinema etiquette for all of you people out there. When you leave a theatre, don't assume that all the members of staff have already watched that film. Wait until you are out the building before discussing the plot intricacies with your friends. And definitely don't try to discuss them with the member of staff who's taking tickets for the next lot of people going in. Because you've just ruined it, not only for the members of staff, but the people queuing to go in for the next show. It's, it's just not good etiquette. Cinema etiquette, you should always consider that people who are you passing when you are leaving have not seen what you've just seen. And if something blew you away it should blow them away in the same way by them going in blind. So, as I said, Andy's seen practically everything, so <laughs> I think it's Literally. probably time to get on with this week's show. And let's start with our social challenge that we ran two weeks ago, but because of, you know, reasons, we didn't get around to talking about it. And that social challenge was, what's the best action sequence that you have ever seen? Yeah, I mean, this question came on the back of Lee being blown away watching the Monkey Man trailer. 
and just saying great action, you know, what what will stand out. And we've had a decent handful of responses, some which you would have expected, some which came as a bit of a surprise. Lindsay, I'm going to start with Lindsay's story this week, said, I'm not a massive action film fan, but the big battle scene in Guardians of the Galaxy 3 gave me goosebumps and made me very emotional. I mean, this is something that James Gunn's done across all the Guardians films. He's made them look swish. He's made the action look fun, vibrant, and also packed with emotion halfway through. That's that's what works well with a great action sequence. It's not just got to be something that's brilliantly choreographed, but it also yeah. has to be something that that has an emotional an emotional reason for for being there as well. Uh, Lee Leary, Justice League Warehouse Fight. Yeah, it's probably the only decent scene in that whole film. Uh, they live, Rowdy, Roddy, Piper, <laughs> yes, and Keith of David. Course. Um, the final face-off between Cage and Travolta in face-off. Uh, yeah, that's, a. I mean, John Woo ticking his boxes and putting every one of his cliches within that film. And why not? Uh, Stephen Young, the gun catter in the hallway sequence in Equilibrium, for some reason stands out in his mind as an honourable mention. Well worth it. Um, it's, yeah. it's an interesting movie and made even better by those action sequences. Yeah, it's great choreography. Uh, Favourite is possibly the big hero battle in Avengers Endgame for sheer epic scale of characters as such a moment in cinematic history. And yeah, I mean, there's moments within that whole Endgame final 40 minutes huge battle that kind of feel forced and feel a bit laboured. But the iconic moments, such as Cap with Molnir, uh, or the on your left. That, you know, that, that, that line makes me well up every time yeah. I hear it. It's just a whole action sequence that is just packed with moments that just hit the emotional core for people who've been invested in those characters since Iron Man. Andy Kennedy said the obvious call is old boy corridor scene, which, yeah, I mean, that's a top choice. It set the standard by which other scenes that tried to emulate it will always be judged by. And Andy followed on with saying even Marvel have tried to replicate it multiple times and only attempts to match through clever editing. Whereas that was not clever editing, that was a single take. Yeah. Owen Cooper, bit of a weird choice, but I really like the opening shootout in Fallen Angels. Uh, the last fight in Spider-Man with Green Goblin springs to mind. And can he say the entirety of the raid? Yes, of course you can say the entirety of the raid. Yeah. I don't think there's one scene in the raid where you go, that scene's, oh, hang on, no, there's, wait a minute, there's, there's so <laughs> many good scenes. Uh, Colin Firth and Hugh Grant's fight in Bridget Jones is also a great action <laughs> set piece. Marvellous stuff. Yes. I love it when there's like clumsy, scrappy fighting, which is almost real. I mean, I'm not a lover of Bridget Jones's diary. It's okay. But that scene is hilariously brilliant. Um, To add, he also wants to say that any of Hit Girl's fight scenes in the first Kick-Ass, the hallway scene in Daredevil, the reptile fight in Mortal Kombat 1995, even if you don't like the film, you have to admit the music is great at building up the scene. And this, yeah, the music of Mortal Kombat is one of the reasons that I love that film so much. Over on Twitter... We had Craig Wright, tech writer, the dam dive in Goldeneye. Yeah, that was breathtaking when that first yeah. came, I remember when that first came out and all the hoo-ha about, wow. I mean, you look at it now and just go, well, we've seen it done so many times since, but that was breathtaking. And the skyscraper climb fall, whatever Mission Impossible that was in, which, as I pointed out, that'll be the Burj Khalifa one in Mission Impossible 4 Ghost Protocol. What a breathtaking stunt. Even re-watching the films on home release last year with my daughter, that scene has you just clutching for breath because it's it's tom cruise's dedication to throwing himself into himself which makes those kind of stunts in mission impossible work at halfling server said the jason statham fight scene on a bus in the mechanic 2 i don't know that one i've watched mechanic and mechanic 2 
I can't quite remember the impact of that scene, but I am intending to go back and revisit a lot of Jason Statham films because I hate myself um, at some <laughs> point. So <laughs> I will get around to it. I admire your honesty. Amelia Oliver, this is one that I was expecting. The opening scene of Saving Private Ryan. Yes. 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 Absolutely brutally impactful. I was going to add to that the border crossing scene in Sicario. Boy, mm, does that hold you tense. on the edge of your seat all the way through. Uh, North by Northwest, Cary Grant yeah. basically is an action star being chased by uh, a crop duster plane. Grumpy duck over on uh, Blue Sky. The docking scene from Interstellar has me on edge of my seat every time. Oh, good. And uh, Stephen Young also posted via Spotify under his wife's name of Kate Young, as he uh, <laughs> tends to do because he forgets he's logged into her account. Uh, Kill Bill vol Volume 1 and 2, just all of it. He also added Hit Girls action scenes in Kick-Ass, agreeing with Owen over on Facebook, uh, especially the hallway fight or when she saves Big Daddy in equilibrium, the gun cutter that is used. I'm surprised no one's mentioned Matrix. Well, I will. <laughs> okay, well, you will. And before list. you do that, I'm just going to mention the bank robbery shootout in Heat. Yes. A well-planned through and well-choreographed oh, shootout. Uh, but yeah, Matrix for sure. In particular for me, it's the lobby shootout. I know a load of people go for like the wow of like him going, like falling backwards with the bullets going over him or, you know, pulling the helicopter down into the building. No, for me, it's from the start of that lobby, the mentoring, going through the metal detector and all of that sequence playing out is just beautifully perfect. With that soundtrack as well. I want to throw in Point Break, the chase through the houses and over the streets oh, yeah, and into on. the viaduct. And that's a that's a scene that has an emotional impact because it's the recognition of who they both really are and realising the sense of betrayal between them both. It's perfection. Uh, Jackie Chan's earlier films always have some fantastic sequences, most of them inspired by Buster Keaton. Yes. The bicycle chase in Project A is one of my personal favourites. I love that sequence. The bus sequence, that's in... Um... Police story, isn't it? Yeah. Early Jackie Chan is just absolutely brilliant. Uh, Plainside Brawl in Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark, up against the rather yeah, yeah. brutally thuggish Nazi. Are there any other kind? Recently for me, Extraction 2's almost half-hour single fake shot, which starts off in the prison, through the prison yard, where it goes very Raid 2-esque, oh, and yeah, then leads yeah, to yeah. the train with a complete... Oh, it just never seems to stop, but it, it keeps going, but never t you're never tired of it. You're just completely wowed at each sec section of it. It's, mo it. it's one of the only things from Netflix action that has actually really genuinely pushed the boundaries on what you can deliver. I'm surprised no one's mentioned anything from John Wick, uh, especially from John Wick 4. I was thinking that the, uh, the Paris sequence with uh, John Wick in the car around the Arc de Triomphe. Yeah, yeah that's it great sequence as a huge bruce lee film the ending of way of the dragon which is bruce lee versus chuck norris yep i'll go for that there's obvious choices such as the at at attack in empire strikes back it's just so iconic and it's just thr like thrill peril danger and the good guys are not going to win in that situation yeah you could throw back to the early days of cinema. We've already met referenced Buster Keaton via Jackie Chan. Buster Keaton delivered some startling, startling oh, um, stunt did work. Did he practically? And, Howell, and no and stunt Howell Lloyd as well was another one who... Oh, um, hanging from those buildings. Boundaries. 
y- y- we could talk for hours about different action scenes in films because there are so many good ones. And so that's the joy of, of, of movies is, is the action sequences. Uh, whether they are high stakes ones like the beginning of Casino Royale or, or you know, The Matrix or, or something a little bit closer to home, the Ben-Hur chariot race, for instance, or the yeah. fight scene in the lift in Captain America, Winter Soldier. Yeah. Everyone's got a favourite because the choreography is is so damn good, and and if it's done well, there should be a, an emotional resonance to it as well as just the thrill of being able to 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 see that kind of canvas. Anyway, should we have a question for this week? I think we should. Uh, next week is our two hundredth episode. Blimey, two hundredth. Well, it's two hundred and something with all the bottle episodes <laughs> and the additional episodes, but it's officially our two hundredth. So what's the film as that changed? As, as long as next week doesn't become episode one hundred and ninety nine point five. <laughs> hey, you know what? Let's not let's not even count that out. <laughs> Which film changed your life? It might be the film itself. It might be the conditions that you saw the film. It might be who you saw the film with. Did it make you fall in love with the movie, the art form, the person you were with, the place that you saw it? So which film changed your life? Let us know. By doing this, head on over to social platforms Facebook, Blue Sky, Twitter, search for Film File UK. We're on there. The question of the week gets posted on there. Or you can email us directly, podcast at filmfile.uk. Or if you listen to us on Spotify, you can answer via Spotify because the question will be in the show notes. Well, we look forward to uh, hearing your responses. What have we got on this week's show? Well, we have a deep dive into, well, one of my favorite and and when i'm talking one of my favorites it's in the it's sometimes in the number one position it's sometimes in the number two or three but it's always always up there we'll be talking about butch cassidy and the sundance kid andy has reviews of i'm gonna do iron claw which opened at cinemas this week that i've been looking forward to so much even though i don't particularly care a jot for wrestling and then my second review I'm going to leave it for Lee to pick as it gets the reviews, because I've watched two (laughs) Sky Originals in one day this week. You know, if you'd have been ill, Andy, you'd have got away with all that. (laughs) Lee has to decide whether I'm going to shred the life out of 57 Seconds or The Bricklayer. And we'll both be talking about... A charming animation from the mind of someone who you wouldn't have considered as family-friendly kind of screenwriter, Charlie Kaufman, Orion and the Dark. But before that... We've got the news and we've got the box office. As I've been in uh, hibernation for the last week, you know, like Ripley is at the end of Alien. That, that's been <laughs> this week. So um, the, the world's a bit of a blur, really. I don't know what's doing well. I know what's not doing well. And Argyle's seriously underperformed. But yeah. has anything come along and wowed? cinema audiences this last week in the u.s argyle takes the top spot for a second week with 6.5 million it's only taken a total of 60 million worldwide so far so it's not great that it's in the number one slot when it's only taking a pittance of money in second place new entry lisa frankenstein third place the beekeeper still holding a position within the top five takes another 3.5 million the chosen season four episodes one to three still taking some box office slots away from films with 3.2 million and Wonka in fifth place with 3.1 million. In the UK, Migration holds the top spot with 2.5 million. It's up to 6.7 million in the UK. 
Argyle is in second place with 994,000. The Iron Claw opens into third place with 671,000. All of Us Strangers in fourth place, 510,000. And Pepper Pig's Cinema Party takes fifth place with 490,000. So yeah, as with last week, Argyle might be looking like it's doing well because of its positions in the top five, but it's not. It's not doing strong enough to justify the budget that was thrown at that. And even though Vaughn has more or less said that he'd love, he wants to continue it. He's got ideas for prequels, sequels, etc., and he's tied it into the Kingsman universe. I'd be very surprised if Apple want to put their hands in their pocket for that kind of money for any future ones. But it, I suppose it all depends on how it lands when it lands on the Apple Plus streaming service. Because if they get really good viewing figures there, then it might be seen as potential for just keeping exclusive to the service. I think that's the most box office light we've ever been. It's just not an exciting time. It's not going to be an exciting time at the box office until in a few weeks' time when Dune 2 lands, which that's when we'll probably... so close now. Three weeks. The expectations are that Dune 2 is going to open really strong and will more than justify the plans for the third film that Villeneuve wants to do before he moves on. It's only a few weeks away, and I'm so excited. My appetite is wet. I'm ready. Bring it on. Bring on those worms. So let's move on to the news, and let's start with let's start with Disney, because Disney have been doing their first quarter earnings announcements this week. Uh, Bob Iger's had quite a lot to say. Not I bet he has. Not much of it has been stuff that we haven't already kind of picked up on since he took back the reins and booted Chapek out of the role. They've revealed what's going to be coming out and what's not going to be coming out. Along with the standard announcements of how they're doing on their first quarter, the biggest surprise was Bob Iger announcing that Moana 2 is due out later this year. Okay. Did we need Moana 2? Well, this is one of those weird ones that this is apparently what was planned to be a Disney Plus TV series spin-off of Moana with different voice cast. And it would have been like multiple stories over a series but they've now decided to condense it into one film and re-edit it and restructure it and now they're putting the feelers out for the original voice cast to reprise their roles whether they will is another matter but it's planned to come out at the back end of this year but there was an interesting quote that came from Iger at the same time about the marvel output which has led some questions as to where the studio intends to go with them because we know that last July, Iger had made comments saying that the combination of increased film output and several Marvel series had diluted the focus and attention away from the films and potentially impacted the brand. Yeah. But during question and answers from the stockholders, he stuck with his original assessment, saying the company is definitely going to slow its Marvel output and it will rely on its more profitable and higher profile franchises. In his words... I'd say we're leaning a little bit more into sequels and franchises. I think given the environment and given what it takes to get people out of their homes to see a film, leaning on a franchises that are familiar is actually a smart thing. In our zeal to greatly increase volume, partially tied to this desire to chase more global subs for our streaming platform, some of our studios lost a little focus. So the first step we've taken is we've reduced volume, we've reduced output, in particular in Marvel. Now this suggests that X-Men may be closer on the horizon if they want to go to recognisable franchise branding. And Fantastic Four should be getting sorted pretty soon to actually get some proper announcements. But it probably means a step away from doing these one-offs that we've had over the past few years, setting up new characters. We know that we've got Deadpool 3 ahead of us. We know that things are progressing pretty positively with the Daredevil TV series. 
Um, but film-wise, expect to see a lot of changes on what the plans were. I'm not surprised by that that comment. I think, you know, when we saw Eternals that didn't have any real desire from an audience to see, especially mm. in wake of the end of the Avengers. As you say, Shang-Chi was a bit of an anomaly, an outlier and all that, because it was a character that, well, it was in, a character in a very, very good film. And that's yeah. what saved it. So I, I think that was its, its strength. There wasn't much to critique in the movie at all. It was standalone enough and different enough to, to pull in an audience. So we've said that I think it became incredibly convoluted, that you had to have seen a thing, even, even Marvels, which we both enjoyed. If you'd not seen Miss Marvel as a TV series or were aware of a character from WandaVision and you walked in off the street, you were playing catch-up. And one thing Marvels didn't do was give you much time to breathe. No, it jumped straight in. It, it was just an action thrill ride for an hour and 40, which we both enjoyed, but we were already invested in each of those characters anyway. Chapex experimentation with the Disney Plus service and channeling as much money into making mu multiple shows has clearly damaged a lot of their brands, including the Star Wars brand, yeah. which has been scrambling to try to work out the next films. But as part of their calls, there there was talk about actual release dates that have been locked in. Now, we know that this year we're going to get Inside Out 2 arriving on June the 14th. The aforementioned Moana 2 is November the 27th. So they're hoping for that Christmas run to generate footfall. Um, but that does put it up against the first part of the Wicked musical adaptation. So it might struggle to uh, gain some cinema seats. 2025 is going to see Zootopia 2 make its debut, which they're planning around Thanksgiving for that one. And in 2026, they intend to release a trio of juggernaut films, Frozen 3, Toy Story 5, and the Star Wars film, The Mandalorian and Grogu. Three projects that are expected to actually do fantastic at the box office. Prior to the actor's strike, Disney had also put aside dates for the star, two other Star Wars films in 2026, May the 22nd, and December the 18th, and one for December the 17th, 2027. They're still kind of getting juggled around as to what those projects are going to be or whether they're going to make it. But the Mandalorian film is definitely confirmed to be coming out first. And that's been reaffirmed. So expect that in summertime 2026. Staying with Marvel. And though it's not been officially announced, it is looking pretty much like Pedro Pascal has got the role of Mr. Fantastic in the Fantastic Four film due to Sagafra mentioning... What the yes, <laughs> I saw this. <laughs> SAG-AFTRA, in a now-deleted part of the internet, kind of revealed casting details of projects accidentally as names were linked to titles. Whoops. It was picked up very rapidly by the press, who then scrambled to take as many screenshots as possible. And then when it got deleted, everyone's just basically gone, that's kind of confirmed everything now, hasn't it? Because if they've panicked to delete it, they know they've released some news that they shouldn't have released. Now, SAG-AFTRA are just, they're updating their records, they're updating their announcements, they're saying where everything's linked. They, it's part of their routine. They have to do these things. But it looks like uh, they got a slap on the wrist from Disney and Marvel. <laughs> by we know, we know how secretive Disney and Marvel can be. I mean, they have, a, I think, at press conferences that Tom Holland's at, they have snipers on the roof ready. Um, <laughs> yeah, they've got those but, darts and just... Uh... <laughs> Tom said too much. If you ever see Tom Holland just slump in his chair, he's just been hit with a tranquilizer. 
And Mark Ruffalo is just as bad for doing it as well. He's terrible for accidentally dropping secrets. But it does look like uh, it's going to be Pedro Pascal. Uh, it's still almost pinch of salt corner. So just a sprinkle of salt. Yes. A throw like Salt Bay, only not costing five billion. <laughs> I, I can't remember if we mentioned this last week, but there was some, suddenly talk of a surprise Jurassic World movie uh, with director David Leach uh, attached. Anyway, <laughs> the surprise is David Leach is no longer attached. Yeah, I mean, that that was a quick turnaround, wasn't it? We didn't mention it last week. I think, think it dropped just as we were right. recording last week, so we didn't add it in. It, within a matter of days, it's all been scrapped. Uh, the upcoming Jurassic World, it's, it's almost a reboot that they're aiming for, has now had to hunt for another director because the negotiations with Universal Pictures didn't go well. Apparently, the parting is amicable. The breakdown in talks is said to be due to differing creative visions for the project. Yeah, David Leach probably wants to make a good film, whereas Universal just wanted to churn out <laughs> the same old rubbish again. Uh, David Coop, who penned the first two Jurassic Park films, which were based on the Michael Crichton novels, is set to write the screenplay. So there's the hope that it will tap back into what made the original so good. But let's be honest, that's a franchise that it's now just become, oh, look, there's a T-Rex. Oh, there's another strange dinosaur that never existed that the T-Rex has to battle. Oh, the Velociraptors are really cute. Velociraptors shouldn't be cute. That's one of the biggest flaws. Of they should be those eating sequels. your face off. <laughs> yeah, it, it's like every film has missed the point of what made Jurassic Park so good. Jurassic Park was so good because it was really about a family dynamic trapped in a threatening, perilous environment. Yeah. You know, like Steve Spielberg does so well. And speaking of on and off projects, you can get excited about things and then you just inevitably led to disappointment. It looks like we might not get to see Coyote versus Acme at all now. Well, this has been a whole mess of mess, hasn't it? We reported last year how Warners were going to write off the completed film Coyote versus Warners, I mean, um, Acme, <laughs> for tax reasons. As you know, David Zaslav loves to do. Here's art that we spent loads of money on. Let's get half of that money back by writing it off for tax purposes rather than seeing if it makes money. After there was a backlash from the public, they then went, all right, then we won't write it off. We'll put it up for sale. Now, apparently, despite offers from pretty much every major distributor, Netflix, Amazon, Paramount, etc., Warners have turned them all down because they've decided to slap a cost of at least $75 million and won't accept any counteroffers, dubbing the offer on the table as a take-it-or-leave-it situation. And no one wants to pay that. To, to, to add insult to injury on this, apparently none of the executives at Warner's have watched mm. this film. Yeah, it's been revealed that Zaslav himself hasn't seen any version of the film and so all his decisions are not made on the, will this creatively make any business? It's just, uh, let's just write things off to make our books look good. This is everything that's wrong with Warners at the moment, because yeah. they're all about manipulation of the figures on the page. Just from it's the not a good business itself, model. This, is going to be, this will be enough of a success to justify release, because the people now want to see it, to see why the studio wanted to bury it. Maybe that's what they're hoping for now. Maybe it's yeah. enough word of mouth to go, you know what, we've generated word of mouth on this. Uh, uh, let's do something with that. Will we get to see it or not? I don't think we will at this rate. I'm losing hope in seeing this film, so I'm just going to sit back and hope to be pleasantly surprised when it finally gets released in 15 years or so. Some good news came this week. Oh, I'm, I'm up for good news. We both loved Prey. We did. 
Trackenberg and 20th Century Studios are teaming up again for another Predator film titled Badlands. Yes. What we don't know is, is this going to be Prey 2 or are we going into different territory? Badland territory, I'm guessing. According to rumours that I've seen, um, and nothing's fully confirmed yet, but it's not going to be a direct sequel to Prey. The idea is that they want to do, they want to do little standalone Predator films. That makes sense. And this one is set to be set, it's said to be set sometime in the future, featuring a female lead. Um, but the full story details are under wraps. Release plans for this title are unknown, but it's very likely that given the success that Prey had on the streaming service, this might get a cinematic outing because the goodwill for the Predator franchise has been built up again. Yeah, I mean, sources are saying that there is talks, early development talks, that a Prey 2 is still in the works that would return the film's original setting with its star, Amber Mid-Thunder, to seeing more adventures of that character. Uh, Kevin Williamson, yes. the guy who was behind the, behind things like Scream and Dawson's Creek, writer-creator, basically established the style of films from the late 90s that have echoed through the decades since. He's finalised an overall deal for his Outer Banks Entertainment banner at Universal Television last December. And this week, word came that he's got four high-profile TV series projects in development at the studio, Has he now? two of which are remakes of iconic thrillers. Ooh. Hitchcock's Rear Window yes, I and heard Fincher's that. The Game. Okay. I could see uh, Rear Window. There has been there was a, a version with Christopher Reeve, TV movie. Yeah. There was also, what was the Shia LaBeouf film? And then there was Disturbia, you were right. I'm interested to see what he can do with a series reimagining of Rear Window. Um, this has been set up for Peacock. Presumably, it's going to keep the similar premise of an apartment-bound journalist, but how they're going to how they're going to play it over like a miniseries remains to be seen. And the game will see the film's original writers of John Brancato and Michael Ferris returning to adapt that film into a series format. It's in internal development at the moment and is the least far along of the four projects. The other two projects have other origins. One's an adaptation of Ruth Ware's book, The It Girl, which will have Sarah L. Thompson co-writing alongside Williamson, and it follows a woman in search for answers a decade after her friend's murder. And the other is a dysfunctional family crime drama called The Waterfront, which is based on an original concept about a family that owns a crumbling North Carolina fishing empire. Williamson is solo writing that one. The latter two works are expected to be shopped around. Ben Fast, the president of Outer Backs Entertainment, is going to executive produce all four titles. I'm, I'm interested to see what he can do with series formats. I'm, I'm, I'm definitely interested in Rear Window. Who would have ever thought that Bob Odenkirk, he of comedy and character acting, would become a action star? Well, he did with John Wick veteran Costad writing him in Nobody, but he's teaming up with, and get this, not on your bingo cards, Ben Weekly, the genre-hopping filmmaker who made films like High Rise, Rebecca, a Kill List, and yes, The Meg 2. They're both on board with a new action thriller called Normal. Yes, and this will also be uh, one of my favourite genres, a Western at the is same time. Now? He's all over the place, isn't he, Ben Wheatley, really? Yeah, I mean, I'm not I'm not overly convinced on Wheatley's direction for it because uh, I, I like Wheatley's earlier, rougher, independent work. I don't take to him as an action director. You know my thoughts on The Meg 2? Yes. 
Odenkirk in this in this film is going to play a character called Ulysses, who's described as a substitute teacher of the sheriff world. Running away from the demons of his past, he's taken over the sleepy town of Normal following the untimely death of the town's original lawman. And then the town's bank is robbed by outsiders and Ulysses uncovers a deep criminal conspiracy at the heart of Normal and realises that everyone in town, be it the barman or the priest, is in on the conspiracy. If you think about it, somebody like Bob Odenkirk, in that kind of a setting, is not that far removed from no. a James Stewart movie. You know, back in yeah. the day, in a Western, you would have James Stewart as, a, in inverted commas, an, an, a, a lead action hero who somebody we wouldn't think of by today's comparison. Mark me down as interested. I mean, you know, you've got my, you've got my favourite genre in there of westerns. You've got action thrillers. You've got Bob Odenkirk playing the the one good person in a whole town. I mean, it, it sounds like a traditional western yeah, concept exactly. film, and that's what we want, but just with a just with a slightly nuanced slant. Hopefully, Ben Wheatley can prove that his past couple of films have just been blips on his radar because he can capture characters. That's one thing that he can do. But it's big budgets that he struggles with. He gets a bit too, I think he just gets a bit too bogged into, I've got all this money, let's throw it at the screen. When he's not that kind of director, keep it tight, keep it character-based. That's what a Western should be. Now, the Oscars is less than a month away. It is. And already we know that for next year's Oscars, there's going to be a brand new category. Is there? Is yes. it best performance in a podcast? By any chance, because I, I feel we've got just a chance. <laughs> I, I think we could be in the running for that one. But no, um, this is one that people have questioned for a while, especially since we're starting to see lots of really strong ensemble casts delivering all across the board. There's going to be a new category, Best Achievement in Casting, which oh. will recognise casting directors. Academy CEO Bill Kramer and Academy President Janet Yang said in the statement, statement Casting directors play an essential role in filmmaking, and as the Academy evolves, we are proud to add casting to the disciplines that we recognise and celebrate. We congratulate our casting directors, branch members, on this exciting milestone and their commitment and diligence throughout this process. Casting directors have been fighting for this recognition since the 1990s, and the new award starts being handed out at the 98th Annual Ceremony in 2026, awarding the films that get released over 2025. Maybe at some point, now that they're listening to people petitioning for stuff, we might get to see the best stunts Oscar, which has been campaigned for for quite a few decades. A couple of quickies. First of all, Catherine O'Hara has landed an undisclosed part in Last of Us Season 2, joining all the other new names that have entered the fray, such as Caitlin Devo as Abby, Young, Man Young Manzino as Jesse, Isabella Merced as Dina, along with returning faces Bella Ramsey, Pedro Pascal, etc., O'Hara's character details are not known as yet, but speculation is that she will portray the Seraphite Prophet. Fans of Babylon 5, who might have been getting a bit angsty at the lack of news on this new adaptation, the plans for the reboot are still in the, are still in the pipeline. Straczynski confirmed this this week on Twitter, saying Warners believes in the project. They've negotiated the script back from the CW to sell elsewhere because the CW was not moving forward with it and are scrapping a lot of projects because they're selling up. Um, they had to bring it to broadcast networks first, but we all knew that wouldn't be their thing. They're hoping to get someone such as Paramount Plus to pick it up, but rest assured, Straczynski still hopes that by the end of this year, they will go into production. Fans of the Percy Jackson TV series that's on Disney Plus at the moment may have been a bit worried, especially with Disney on a bit of a cancellation spree of late. 
well, you'd be pleased to know that there is going to be a season two. Yes, Percy Jackson has been renewed. Tom Cruise might be in Tarantino's The Movie Critic. Okay. Apparently, the big star has been looking at his schedules to see if he can work a way to fit in to filming on The Movie Critic. Now, Tarantino has previously commented how he likes Tom Cruise, saying that he's a great guy and we really hit it off when they met in 2019. And The Movie Critic sees Tarantino reteaming with Brad Pitt for the third time, set in Southern California in 1977, and is set around a cynical movie critic. It's also expected to include recreations of films from the era, but with alterations. So it's possible that Tom Cruise might be a bit role in a movie within the movie. We don't know. We don't know much about the casting details for this film. All that we know is Tarantino, Hollywood, film love. It's the perfect film to close off his career. It's been a good week for trailer drops. Well, one in particular got Andy and I very excited, and that was the trailer for, and we've been expecting this for some time. No, it's not Salem's Lot, because <laughs> I don't think we're <laughs> ever, ever going to see a Salem's Lot trailer. It was for A Quiet Place Day One, the trailer that brings the terrifying start to New York right at the get-go. This looks great. This is everything I'd hoped. The trailer starting off with like just the clips from the Quiet Place film so far, and then like the, the ticker for the days goes back to day one, and then you see comets falling from the sky, decimation, and then quick flashes of the, the alien menace capturing people. It's a well-put-together trailer to make you sit up and take notes. Lupita Nyong'o in a fantastic lead performance by the looks of it. Uh, I sat, sat and watched this trailer with uh, my daughter and my wife. Uh, my daughter straight away picked up at Jaimon Hounsou popping up. Yes. Went, well, we know he, we know he survives because he's from that's like, yeah, but that's how it's all going to link in. We're getting to see all the characters that we've seen glimpsed and had minor parts in the previous two films. It looks really good. I also watched the trailers for Ministry of Ungentlemanly Warfare. The new Guy Ritchie movie. Yeah. Um, Henry Cavill, Alan Richardson, Eliza Gonzalez, Carrie Elwes. A World War II era set film from Guy Ritchie that is actually inspired by actual records of covert operatives during the war who just caused disruption. Um, looks quite promising. It looks the perfect Guy Ritchie vehicle for his style of filmmaking to deliver. And sticking with Richie, there was also the trailer for the TV series for The Gentleman. Uh, we got a taste of what to expect from the spin-off of his film that lands in March in series format. And to be fair, it certainly looks snappy. I know you're more of a fan than I am, uh, but Idris Elba is back in the Sonic spin-off uh, Knuckles, and the trailer for that dropped this week. If you're interested in family films, Despicable Me 4 trailer landed recently. And oh look, Gru has a baby now and finds balancing parenthood and taking on a new nemesis a bit of a challenge. Looks like more of the same, and once more, the highlights of the trailer are the minions who still prompt chuckles in small doses, but have proven in their own films that too much is too much. Uh, still, this is a big money franchise, and it's guaranteed to do well at the box office. So is that the news? That, my good friend, is the news. You're listening to The Film File, the film show for Film Geeks by Film Geeks. And if you haven't already subscribed, please do so by heading over to your favourite podcast platform, leaving a like, and remember to hit that subscription button. You can get in touch with us by... Social media channels, Film File UK, we're mostly prominent on Facebook, Twitter, Mastodon and Blue Sky. 
or you can email us podcast at filmfile.uk. Love to hear from you. Love to hear thoughts on film. And now it's time for this week's Deep Dive. Dive, dive, dive. This week's Deep Dive is a personal favourite. In fact, when I had a significant birthday, I rented a cinema and this was the film that I showed to my invited audience. We're going back to 1969. We're going back to the buddy film that really started all buddy films. Directed by George Roy Hill, starring Paul Newman and Robert Redford as Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Well, that ought to do it. Just like the guy whose feet are too big for his bed. Think enough dynamite there, Butch? <laughs> Nothing seems to fit. Listen, I don't mean to be a sore loser, but uh, when it's done, if I'm dead, kill him. Love to. Raindrops are falling on my head. They keep falling. I never shot anybody before. One hell of a time to tell me. So I just did me some talking to the sun. I'll jump first. I can't swim! Why are you crazy? A fall will probably kill you. Paul Newman is Butch Cassidy, and the Sundance Kid is Robert Redford. Catherine Ross is Etta Place. As it says right at the beginning of the film, some of what you may see might be true because this is based very loosely on Wild West Outlaws, Robert Leroy Parker, better known as Butch Cassidy, played by Newman, his partner, Harry Longabaugh, the Sundance Kid, of course, played by Redford, who were on the run from a crack US posse after a string of train robberies. The pair team up with Sundance's lover, Etta Place, played by the exquisite Catherine Ross, flee to Bolivia and are soon back in the robbery business. Okay, this is not an historical fact of a movie. As it says, the film says so right at the beginning. What it is, is a great buddy movie. Written by William Goldman, his first sold screenplay, the master of the screenplay. This is affable, clever, witty, funny. Uh, it's a film that makes me fall in love with the film while I'm watching it right up to the very end when I cry and fall in love all over again. I don't know why this is one of my favorite films. Was it the fact that I saw it as a kid with my dad and he loved it? Was it the relationship between the two outlaws? Everybody wants to have that kind of buddy, that kind of best friend. Is it the humor? Is it the dazzling dialogue? Is that every scene ends with just a cracking joke? Is it the fact that these characters are just so damn charming that you cannot take your eyes off them? This was Newman at the top of his game. This was Redford at the beginning of his. Great soundtrack by Burt Bacharach. Okay, a lot of people have said it's dated, but hey, the film came out in 1969, so it feels apt. There is nothing in this film that I can say lets me down. Every time I show it, it's like welcoming a bunch of friends over and sitting and enjoying the experience. And I just hope, Andy, for you, you had that same experience. I've not seen this as much. I mean, I didn't latch on to Butch Cassidy, the Sundance Kid, until quite late. When I say quite late, I think the first time I actually watched this was less than 10 years ago. And there's always that risk when you go back to watch a film that was made so long ago that if you weren't there at the time, you don't quite connect with it. But I, I remember the first time I watched it, I was like, 
you know what, this has got some charm to it. And then I've watched it about two or three times since. And each time I watch it, I, it grows even better on me. And this time watching it, I loved it. Oh, I mean, good. right from yeah. the opening shot, the opening section it, with the monochrome sepia palette, we get to, basically both the characters get introduced in a very monochrome palette that feels authentic to the time period that it's set in of like, you know, drawn it upon like those old monochrome postcard photos that you always see, which are scattered throughout this film as well and used as part of the visual stylings of it. And it's only once you have kind of got under the skin of the characters that it goes out to the sweeping vista and suddenly goes to the full color palette. And I love that. Yeah. We've, I've said earlier in the show in the news, like I'm a huge fan of Westerns. And that is the perfect way to introduce a Western to me. Like with some of my favorite Westerns, Goldman's script here, you've already said like it's kind of based on a true story, but the best Westerns take the true story and then mythologize around it. We've seen it with, you know, over the 90s when we got the Young Guns films, you know, they were drawn from actual events, but they were not to be taken literally because a good Western should draw upon that myth and build on that myth. And that's what this film does so good. Goldman's storytelling in the script is perfect for just making this a Western buddy movie, as you've described it. And everything that they encounter, get involved with, even though they are criminals, you root for them because they are they're kind of like gentlemanly criminals which is demonstrated with the multiple raids on the railroad transportation of money and gold. That, With their banter with the character of Woodcock, it was brilliantly played by George Firth, refusing to open the doors, knowing that all that they're going to do is strap dynamite on it, and he risks it, like he risks injuring himself again. And the banter between them as they're trying to convince him, it's like, come on, just let us in, Woodcock. And it's that charming nature that makes you root for people who were bad guys, basically. And you don't see them as bad guys. You see the people wanting to hunt down these criminals as the bad guys. When we started recording this, I, I couldn't find my notes. And I, and I said to Andy, sort of semi-jokingly, for this film, I don't need my notes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that opening sequence that uh, Andy described, the, the uh, monochrome, we spend a, a long time focused on Robert Redford because... Newman was a big star. Everybody knew who Newman was. Redford was just an up-and-coming movie star at this time. Hadn't had the equal billing that uh, he would get opposite someone like, like Paul Newman. So the camera stays on Redford for an inordinate amount of time. Mm. So we get used to that face and we get to know who he is. And he becomes a partner in the film. He becomes not just a co-star. It's a, it's a, a double-star headliner. Uh, as I said, I, I love this film. And I think... For all the jokes, for all the, the charisma of the two stars, it has something to say. And I think that's what makes it uh, an eternal story. It's about running out of time. And these characters are genuinely doing that. They run away from one situation to the next with the law and modern society catching them up. There is nowhere for these characters to go. And there's a poignancy right right from the very first frame of this movie, right to the end, to the, to the classic freeze frame, of these characters just run out of time. That's what gives it a sensibility. That's what gives it weight. It could be just a light, frothy buddy movie and would work very well just as that. But the reason this film has lasted, the reason that it's still considered a classic is because there's so much more going on than just these characters on the lam and having some laughs. This is about the end of an era and the start of a new one. And these characters 
can't fit into that anymore. Apparently, the film was a lot funnier on its initial previews, uh, which irritated director George Roy Hill uh, because test audiences on the first previews were laughing, extended laughter at points which he thought were part of the tragedy of his film. And so he then took the film off and cut out some of the bigger laughs in order to in order to get the tone better balanced. And I think it perfected it because, yes, there's still moments that you're chuckling with. Yes, there's still lighthearted stuff, but it never overpowers the impact of like the more dramatic tension and the, the more serious moments of the film. Uh, there's a great chemistry between all the cast involved in this. The Newman and Redford chemistry is a perfect buddy friendship. And you can't really imagine any of the other casting choices that they had for Redford's role because Steve McQueen was apparently touted at one yeah. point. Jack Lemon was offered the role uh, initially. But you genuinely feel that Redford and Newman are best friends and you get that banter between them. With regards to the supporting cast, Catherine Ross, you've already said she's marvellous. And she is, even though she was banned from set after day one, unless she was shooting. Uh, she upset George Roy Hill because on day one, she was visiting set to see how it all kicks off. And she was dating the cinematographer. That's right. Conrad Hall. But they had cameras set up and one of the camera rigs didn't have someone to man it. And because she was dating the cinematographer, she learned some aspects of using it. So he got her to work on it. And George Roy Hill didn't say anything until the end of day and then told her that she's no longer allowed on set unless she's got a scene because of what she's done. He didn't take any action against the cinematographer, Conrad Hall, just took it against Catherine Ross. And it created a bit of tension between them. But you don't feel that on screen because when she's on screen with these two great stars, she seems relaxed. On the bicycle ride scene, She's even more relaxed because that was one day that George Roy Hill wasn't on set himself. Um, it was a second unit who were making that one. And uh, so she, that's why you can see the genuine joy that they were having fun, uh, which on the bicycle scene, uh, Paul Newman did pretty much all of his own work on that one. All of his stunts on the bicycle scene because the stuntman apparently couldn't stay on the bike. <laughs> It is considered one of the classic scripts. Uh, William Goldman first came across the story of Butch Cassidy in the late 50s uh, and researched it with the idea of initially uh, writing a novel, but then started to write screenplays. And Goldman says he wrote a story as an original screenplay because he didn't want to do the research to make it authentic. He shopped it around. His initial feedback was John Wayne never runs away, changed a couple of lines, and then every studio wanted it. The film was a box office success, not necessarily originally a critical success, but mm. the legacy of the film surpassed those original critics to become much loved. So much so that it is ranked number 73 in the AFI's 100 greatest films of all time and selected by American Film Institute as the seventh greatest Western of all time. And Writers Guild of America also has the screenplay at number 11 on its 101 greatest screenplays ever written. With the BAFTAs, it, it still holds the record for the most BAFTA awards won. It won for Best Picture, Actor for Robert Redford, Actress for Catherine Ross, Direction by George Roy Hill, Screenplay, Cinematography, Film Editing, Sound and Score. It basically won every award that it was submitted to. As its 10th nomination, was the dual nomination for actor. So only one of the actors managed to get the award on that one. But I think they both deserved it, let's be honest. Due to the fantastic and yet still shocking ending, which makes you wonder, could they get away with that today? 
there was never a sequel. Yes, there was a prequel. In fact, it invented the term prequels. Butch and Sundance, the early years, starring Tom Berenger as Butch and William Catt as the kid, directed by Richard Lester. Uh, William Goldman was involved and threw some ideas in, but the script is by Alan Burns. And you know what? It's not bad. It's unnecessary, but it's not bad with Berenger and Cat really showing they had the charm. It just wasn't the charm of Redford and Newman, who went on to work together again with George Royer Hill in The Sting and always planned to work together one more time, even right up to Newman's death. I've never seen Butch and Sundance the early days. Uh, the only, my only knowledge of that film came from the reference in Bill and Ted. And that's one thing that this film, Butch, and, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, has had a resonance through. Other media has quoted, represented it, been inspired by it in such a way over the decades that even if you've never seen Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, you are more than aware of it. Even TV shows, Alias Smith & Jones which I series, which was hugely inspired. And I remember watching the TV series growing up even though I'd never watched Butch and Sundance, I loved Alias Smith and Jones. I think I think that was my start, actually. I think I started with, with Alias Smith and Jones. I would have watched the TV before I'd have watched the, watched the movie. So, yeah. Um, there was a, a, a very low-budget made-for-television sequel about uh, Catherine Ross's character and a low-budget made-for-TV. Butch and Sundance, the true story or something like that. It, then it was announced in September uh, of 2022. Amazon Studios were adapting the film to star Reggie Jean Page and Glenn Powell with Joe and Anthony Russo as executive producers. But that seems to have gone very quiet. I think there's room to readapt the story of Butch and Sundance, but I hope they don't make it a direct straight adaptation. I yeah. hope that they can do something a bit more unique and fresh with it, because that's one thing that stood out in the plethora of Westerns of that era. This film stood out by not feeling completely like a Western. It was fun. It was a friendship. It was a buddy road movie done on horseback. It had Western elements in there. But what other Western will have a whole sequence to raindrops keep falling on my head while they're mucking about on a bicycle? That's something that you never see in any other Westerns of the time. Young Guns tried to emulate it with some of its fun vibrancy, but I don't think anything has ever matched it. It will stay up there as one of my all-time favourite films. It's a film I will go back and revisit, and it's a film that will always charm me. Great chemistry, great dialogue, a great movie. Andy, if people want to join us enjoying Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid, where can they do so? Disney Plus. It's on Disney Plus. Just get yourself over there, get it watched, and have a great afternoon watching a great film with a great cast. We'll be back next week with another major deep dive. And now it's time for some reviews. So this week's reviews, I know this is a film, Andy, that you've been looking forward to for an immense amount of time. I know the story. I know who the people are. And I know this film's getting good word of mouth. So Andy, tell me about Iron Claw. Ever since I was a child... People said my family was cursed. We're here to restore justice to the wrestling federation that our father built with his own two hands. Cut! The hands that were passed down to us. The hands that were delivered the iron claw to you. What do you want in life, Kevin Brenner? I want to be with my brother. 
having no particular interest in wrestling and therefore not having any knowledge of the story of the Von Erich family, which one of my colleagues at work tells me were a huge thing in wrestling. I entered this film pretty fresh. My interest in seeing it based purely on the lineup of the cast and the fact that it's an A24 film. The trailers boosted my interest, but aside from being a true story about wrestling, I still didn't know what to expect going in. What the film delivered was a fascinating story of a rise to fame, but a family plagued with tragedy whilst at their peak. Much of it brought on by the very dominating presence of the head of the household and his pushing of his sons to keep up the family legacy. Starting in 1979, the Texas NWA heavyweight champion Kevin Von Erich is worried that his father, Jack Fritz Von Erich, who was a wrestler who had become a promoter and owner of the WCCW professional wrestling organisation, was pushing his younger brother Mike away from his creativity in music in an attempt to have all of his sons follow his own legacy in the ring. Another brother, David, partners up with Kevin and they begin to make waves in tag team tournaments. Whilst another brother, Kerry, is set to represent the USA in the Olympics in track and field events, especially the discus, which he excelled in. However, when politics intervene, resulting in the USA refusing to participate in the 1980 Moscow Olympics, Kerry joins the brothers in the ring. But as the trio are at their height, tragedy after tragedy begins to befall the family, which Kevin attributes to a family curse. As a dramatic film about a dysfunctional family in which the father pushes each of their sons to their limit and somewhat creates tragedy through his intention to live on through them, this is powerful. With that story being drawn on from real events, it only makes it even more stunningly moving and impactful. The wrestling, while still being a core focus of the film, given the importance of the sport to the family, is secondary to the emotional family drama that goes on here. And with Zac Efron bulked up and central in the role of Kevin, were granted an almost sympathetic entry point to the family drama on offer as he tries to steer his father's ambitions while protecting his brothers. Holtz McKelleny heads up the household as Fritz von Erich, casting an overbearing shadow on the household, with Maura Tierney as his wife Doris, a seemingly distant and uncaring mother who offers the boys very little emotional support, making for an upbringing without any apparent love and nurture. Instead, the sons are all simply products for the Von Erich brand. This is an emotionally cold film about an emotionally cold family. Even the bond between the brothers is somewhat tenuous at times, with them all focused more on living up to their father's ideals and expectations than actually caring for each other. Kevin, being the only one who wants to protect Mike, played wonderfully by Stanley Simons, from the crazy world that they are in. Jeremy Allen White, as Kerry, is so focused on his career, having lost his Olympic chance, that he seems broken inside. And even after tragedy strikes himself, he still finds a way to fulfil his planned legacy. Wonderfully cast and shot in a cold and sometimes dirty manner, with director Sean Durkin and cinematographer Matthias Erdley capturing the family drama and the in-ring action in authentic ways. The Iron Claw packs a punch to the heart whilst delivering on the occasional action. It's a fine sports drama in which the sport is a secondary aspect. The next film is a film that we've both seen. It landed on Netflix this week. It's a family film, but with a huge difference. Yes, the script. And that is Orion and the Dark. 
Orion, I'm gonna get you to overcome your fears if it kills me. Whoa. My job is the most fundamental. I show up every night and I bring it. Bring what? Dark. And it's probably the most important job, too, because without darkness, the others don't get to do their bits. Wait, there's more? There's sleep. What? Don't worry, she's a professional. There's sweet dreams. Quiet. Unexplained noises. And of course, insomnia. Well, I'm pretty sure I'm getting fired. Huh? This is so messed up. The thing that Orion, a young boy, fears the most is the dark. So when the embodiment of his worst fear pays a visit, Dark whisks Orion away on a roller coaster ride around the world to prove there is nothing to be afraid of. This stands out for, well, Charlie Kaufman. It's an unconventional way of, of telling a, a family animated film that has a beautiful animation style. Uh, it's, it's visually intriguing. It's one of those which is emotionally resonant, but it is a film that works on a very, very different level. Originally based on a very, very small children's book, Charlie Kaufman, and a name that you wouldn't really put together with the family film, elevates his film into something else. Yeah, uh, the, the book is one of those typical children's books for early ages where there's only a handful of pages and it's a very simple, slight story about a boy who fears the dark, but the dark shows him there's nothing to be feared. Those kind of books make great material to draw inspiration from because it's so slight that you can do pretty much anything with and in the hands of charlie kaufman he's basically delivered john malkovic for children it's so creative i mean it starts off feeling very traditional that this boy who's afraid of pretty much everything he's nervous about everything but the thing he fears the most is when the lights are switched off when he's supposed to go to sleep asking his parents like just leave the door open a bit no, a bit more, a bit more, a bit more, until it's wide open because yeah. he doesn't want the dark. But then when he encounters the dark and the dark takes him on this adventurous journey through the world of nighttime imagination, the film starts to evolve into not only like a confrontation of what causes fear and why you shouldn't be afraid of it, but how storytelling through generations creates the things that we're afraid of and how to overcome it the generations need to kind of combine in their storytelling to show things in a good light because this film deconstructs for storytelling in a very bizarre time distorted manipulative kind of way that only the warped mind of charlie kaufman can understand because i've still got no idea what was going on for most of this <laughs> film but all that i know is that i loved it <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you said that and and you're right this is this is in every way a very recognizable charlie kaufman film you've got a you've got the nervy and edgy lead character which is a kind of a tick box for a lot of charlie kaufman movies uh you've got the uh strange narrative drive to it but impressively you've got the sort of the the kind of meta framing of it i want to point out that i thought the voice cast was really good uh, jacob trembley plays young orion and colin hanks who's so underused i think colin hanks uh, voices the adult version and dark is played by paul walter hauser it's narrated by Werner Herzog. <laughs> yeah and uh, if you, and you just jumped in and it's narrated by <laughs> Werner Herzog. So this is a film that is 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 existentialism for kids, as simple as that. In fact, there's a <laughs> there's a bit in one point where Orion's reading a book 
called Nihilism versus Extensionalism for Kids. <laughs> There's a short Werner Herzog film embedded in it as well. <laughs> this is a, a clever way of telling a children's, a children's film. It's genuinely smart. It's inventive. It's an exploration of themes and ideas. I never thought that you could get such mind-bending storytelling analyses and dreamlike, dreamlike sensibilities into a kid's film successfully in only 93 minutes and still manage to keep it captivating, magical and adventurous so that younger audiences won't feel lost through it. I mean, I'm lost. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> the younger audiences won't delve, won't worry too much about the the time traveling like storytelling aspects as because in order to explain what I'm talking about here, the story is being told in an almost Goldman-esque kind of way by a father to a son. But it's a father to a son in three different generations telling the same story and coming in to help each other at different parts of the story. It's bizarre. As an adult, you try to analyze what's going on and that's where you get lost but younger audiences will just get drawn into the magical adventure and i think that's marvelous i think it's balanced so well i think at the end of it as all children's stories should do it has a profound lesson and i think this resonates for adults as, as, as well as children the core theme of overcoming fears including the fear of the dark and insecurities is what the film is is depicted and i i think it's a film that that tries to do something different with the genre of children's films and has something profound to say and, and is emotional and about personal growth. And for that, I think it deserves to be seen in these head and shoulders of most animated kids' movies. Now, I know that we said in the past that, you know, some of the Netflix productions, it's a shame that they didn't get big screen releases because they would have done great. But I think this is one. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think this is one that sits well on the streaming platform. I think at a cinema, this would have just got buried. This would have got lost because it's such a weird concept, but you have to watch it to appreciate it. On streaming, it's hopefully finding an audience because it deserves to. It's smart. It's educational. It's entertaining. It's engaging. It's a beautiful family film from the mind of someone who is as warped as you can be. <laughs> so that leads <laughs> us on now to talking warped into my warped, <laughs> view of the world as I now have to choose Andy's <laughs> Sky Original uh, to review. And, and Andy, what have, what have we got? What's on offer? So your choices, and I watched both of these in one day because I really do hate myself. There's 57 Seconds, which is time-traveling shenanigans with Josh Hutchinson. Right. Or there's The Bricklayer, which is pretty much the beekeeper in a different skin. Well, because The Bricklayer is the worst title for any film, I don't think I've ever heard. Awful title. I'm going to go with, was it 57 seconds? 57 seconds. It's the ring. It takes you back in time, 57 seconds. That's unreal. Lucky number seven. 15. 15, black. Yes! Thank you very much. <laughs> Did you rob a bank? I went to the casino, I got super lucky. <laughs> I had like a, a bit of an edge. Franklin, who is this? That's my, my twin sister, Natalie. She actually OD'd on a pain pill they gave her. That pill killed my sister. I detect a desire 
for justice. Sig Thornson is responsible for the death of thousands with a drug he knew was devastatingly lethal. But how do I make sure that never happens to anyone again? Are you asking the wrong questions? The real breakthrough is time travel. Ignore the naysayers, Franklin, because money can buy you happiness. This is not about your sister. This is about power. Don't let the intellectual fear in here keep you from pursuing what's burning in here. A tech blogger manages to land a chance to interview a tech guru, prevents an attack on his life, and then comes into possession of a mysterious ring that allows him to rewind time by 57 seconds. He quickly discovers that it then takes a further 57 seconds for the ring to recharge before it can be used again, only allowing for short changes to be made in the 57 seconds prior to activation. However, as he begins using the ring, initially for personal reasons, he unwittingly sets in motion a chain of events that see him caught up in a dangerous corporate warfare. This sounds like an interesting concept. And with Joss Hutchison in the lead role as the blogger, Franklin Fox, with support from Morgan Freeman as the tech guru Anton Burrell, and Greg German as the corrupt tech CEO Sig Thorinson, as well as Bevin Brew and Lovey Simon on hand, this should, on paper, be a decent, if not entirely original, slice of sci-fi. However, this isn't paper. This is film. And somewhere along the way, every ounce of potential has been wrung dry, leaving a dead husk of a film that really tested my patience within the first 57 seconds and never really made anything of the intriguing idea on offer. To be fair, Josh Hutchinson tries his best with what he's given, but when that includes his early playing with the time jumps being done in order to manipulate his way into the heart, and indeed the bed, of love interest Jala, Lovey Simons, it all feels a bit icky and a bit creepy at that point. While seemingly trying to play that moment for laughs, it damages any chance there is for me to care about Franklin from that point on. Morgan Freeman is clearly just cashing a check here, with a phoned-in performance which sees him drift on screen only a couple of times, accompanied by a mysterious cultist-looking follower, whose story is probably a lot more interesting than the actual film itself, but it's never divulged. As the film ramps up the pedal, it all builds to what should be an exciting finale, but instead, it just leaves a bad taste in the mouth through some crazy coincidences and impossible-to-escape-from situations. Director Rusty Cundiff typically has entertained with comedy output over the years, with films such as Fear of a Black Hat, the hip-hop mockumentary from the 90s, which is a personal favourite of mine, and the Tales from the Hood horror comedy anthology series of films. But here, he feels completely out of his depth, delivering a lacklustre sci-fi action thriller that doesn't quite know what it wants to be. It's flat-looking and sloppily written. It's 57 seconds that you want back, followed by the remaining 99 minutes. And of course, in the UK, it landed the three words of terror. A. Sky original, and it fits that label perfectly. If you if you go onto YouTube, you'll see a plethora of these fifty-seven seconds short time travel movies because they're so easy to do, and just seems well, just a, a waste of time. Yeah, it, it is just a, an absolute waste of time, like you say. Those are the reviews. What's coming out this week? So at cinemas this week, top of my list to watch: Bob Marley, One Love. Bottom of my list to watch, but I will watch it anyway, because you know me. Madam <laughs> Web releases. It might be a time where we can both get back into the cinema together and watch something that, well, just watch something. I, I, wanna, I tend, tentatively want to say enjoy, but, <laughs> but I'm not sure that we're both going to enjoy Madam Web. Look, let's keep an open mind. It might impress us. 
There's also The Taste of Things, The Promised Land. And for those people who want to see the big adaptation of Les Mis on the big screen again, it's getting a reissue this weekend. On Now TV and Sky, Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. Do we need to drop the Part 1 these days? I don't know. I'm all confused as to what the titles are going to be. Uh, Dangerous Waters, which is a survival revenge thriller set at sea. And Dash Cam, which came out last year, which didn't overly impress me, but was okay. Netflix sees Players which is a rom-com with Tom Ellis, Gina Rodriguez, and Damon Wayans. Uh, so two decent names out of three isn't bad. Past Lives, which was one of my picks of last year. It drops onto Netflix this week. And the 2017 Lady Macbeth, which starred Florence Pugh and got a lot of critical praise at the time, drops on Netflix. So I'm going to get a chance to watch that. Over on Amazon, Puppy Love. This sounds as terrible as that title is. What a terrible title. A First Date Goes Wrong. And the pair decide to lose each other's numbers until, get this, their dogs find a love match. Sounds abhorrent. (laughs) (laughs) That needs burrowing like a bone at the back of the garden. And I have time for hijinks from these guys who are far too old for doing this kind of thing anymore. But the Grand Tour's latest special, Sand Job, which sees the three of them following the Paris-Dakar rally route in cheap modified sports cars. I know a lot of people are turned off by uh, clocks and etc. I've still got time for them. Well, folks, I guess that's it. Uh, we'll be back again next week with our 200th episode. Please get in touch with us on the socials because it plays into the big theme of next week's show. Uh, but before we go, and we didn't have a chance to do this last week, let's tell you about our neat things. Yeah, even though I've been bedridden for a week, I have a neat thing. Um, Andy? As ever, goes first. What's your neat thing, buddy? So this week, my neat thing is a TV series. And it's one that we've spoken about quite a lot over the past couple of months as it's been getting closer. When the trailers dropped, we both got quite excited. And it's Mr. and Mrs. Smith. With regards to this, this was very different to what I was expecting. The trailers looked like it was going to be full of pizzazz, full of zip, full of comedy, full of action. And it wasn't, but in a good way. Because the first two episodes... Not a lot happens action-wise, but we are getting to learn about these characters. Donald Glover and Mayor Erskine are playing two agents who are given the names Mr. and Mrs. Smith, and are in a fake marriage as their cover, as they're sent on assignments by the mysterious Hi-Hi. The jobs that they get sent on could be as simple as steal this item, or it could be plant these bugs and monitor this situation, or it could put them into peril. But if they fail three tasks, something bad's going to happen. And the first two episodes, while they're getting sent on assignments, it's more learning these characters and how they grow to be connected with each other. Because they are only in that for a job to start with. But being put in that situation, they start to develop feelings for each other. And by the end of the second episode, I was absolutely in with both of these people. I love the relationship drama that is going on behind the espionage that they're doing. It's become that, you know, when they're getting sent on a job, I'm now less interested in the job, more in how they interact, why they're doing the job, because their jobs often present them with personal conflicts as well at the same time, or it makes them analyse their growing relationship. This is a smart adaptation of what was a zippy action film from the early 2000s. Mr. and Mrs. Smith was a joy of a film to watch. This is a great way to adapt a property but make it stand on its own as its own separate thing. It's currently on Amazon. It's well worth watching. Mr. and Mrs. Smith is definitely a neat thing. 
I, I fancied it. I've not got around to watching it. My capabilities to watch anything over the last week have been uh, highly diminished. So it is high on the list. Uh, it's not the first time they tried to do Mr. and Mrs. Smith. There was a bit like True Lies, uh, a couple of other attempts, but this seems to be, from everything that I've heard, the winning formula. Andy mentioned dropping this week is Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning Part 1. And because I've not really been up for watching much, I started on a new podcast. And I always feel like I'm cheating on us when I go to a new podcast. But <laughs> I've always been a fan of the Mission Impossible series. I mean, this is going back to the TV series. I, I just love the concept. Mm. Uh, and this really caught my interest. Initially with the, the first episode that I, I'm going to talk about, but this is the official Mission Impossible podcast, and this is called Light the Fuse. And it really is, if your mission, if you choose to accept it, is to get involved. And boy, do they have a, a really, because it's the official podcast, a real access to some of the big names behind the movie series. And, and I jumped in on uh, an episode which had screenwriter David Kep talking about writing the very, very first Mission Impossible, which I, I love hearing about the creative process. I loved seeing how it comes together and how it, it initially was a bit of a rocky road getting Mission Impossible onto the big screen. It was Tom Cruise's first proper producing job. And Kep was a very, very young up-and-coming writer at this particular point. And it's, it's a, it was a great way to start this particular podcast series. I'm now on to uh, Christopher McQuarrie, taking a bit of a deep dive on the making of Jack Reacher. Now, I think even though Tom Cruise is massively not undercast, he's just not the Jack Reacher that everybody expected from the novel. I think the, the first Jack Reacher film is stunning. And that's down to McQuarrie. Uh, and, and again, a, an interesting point of view because McQuarrie is one of those writers, directors, who, who doesn't hold back. He spills the beans. It's a great series. I'm only three podcasts in so far. Highly, highly enjoyable. If you're a fan of not only the creative process, but a fan of the Mission Impossible series, I cannot recommend it highly enough. That's like the fuse, the official Mission Impossible podcast. And that, folks, that's us done. And I'm kind of proud of myself because we made it. You only had a few coughing fits throughout as yeah, well. Yeah, didn't so do too bad. Uh... You've not, you're not done bad at all. So I, I, you're obviously on the mend, and I'm so pleased to see that. Yes. Uh, I, I know I scared you last week. Seeing you last week, it was like, I hope he's okay. I hope <laughs> he's fine. hope he's fine. My God, we only spoke for 34 minutes. That's not normal. What's going on? We normally talk for, like, more than recording time allows because we, we just got – even when we finish recording, we end up just sat here chatting for three or four minutes at least, sometimes up to 10 minutes, as we just suddenly go, oh, we forgot to mention that. Oh, yeah, let's talk about it next week. Oh, no, no, no. Because we're just good buddies. We are Butch yeah. and Sundance, let's be honest. We are, and we're going to go out on a freeze frame. So see you next week for our 200th episode. Uh, take care, my friend. And you, buddy. And boy, I got vision, and the rest of the world wears bifocals. <laughs>